welcome to Construction Cashflow. I'm your host, Stu Davidson, and if you haven't already done so, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. The other thing in this country, and not so in many other countries, is our planning requirements, as they exist, put a premium on all construction. planning one is what they call a development consent order and the other is through a hybrid bill which is an act of parliament they are very different when any secretary of state or anybody who's doing a major project or program the two things that people are always keen to understand is uh, when is it going to be done when is it going to be delivered and how much it's going to cost. I've been doing for the last 15 years in the roles that I've done is leading major projects from a controls point of view through very tortuous planning requirements. Monitoring and control of the cost which is based on the schedule, which is based on the scope, and is based on the risks associated with delivering that in the environment we're delivering. Many times, people take the estimate and forget about the assumption. And when the assumptions are realized, because they will be realized at some stage, they feel, oh, we thought, we thought that that was in the price. We've learned from uh, major collapses and Carillion being one of the biggest ones is where they have been very brutal with their supply chain. And in fact, they, their supply chains have funded their profits in many ways. In this show, we ask our guests to Tell us their story. Tell us a little bit about their background, how they got to where they are today, how they develop their product, their services, their ideas. And we discuss how that can affect construction cash flow and other areas of construction. And also to give us an idea of how we might make things better and give you a few tips and ideas to take away with you. And listen to the end where you'll find out more about them, more about our guests, about what motivates them, what inspires them, and hopefully that'll inspire you too. And always, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss another episode. In this episode, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Sebash Tavares. Sebash has over 40 years experience in the construction industry, starting out as a civil engineer and moving on to lead multinational projects and national projects, including the Olympics. Sebash is also the founder of the Virtual PMO. So it's without further ado, I'd love to introduce you to Sebash Tavares. Hi Sebash, it's really great to have you here on the Construction Cashflow Show. How are you doing today? I am very well this bright sunny morning. Thank you, Stuart. And it is bright as well. It's lovely. It makes a change. 
it makes a change when you wake up to the sunshine i don't think there's any better feeling even if you don't want to get up so tell us uh, sebash uh, for the audience and listeners that perhaps don't know you uh, yet uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself about your story about the challenges successes and how you got to where you are now so i'm a civil engineer i was born and brought up in in kenya um and lived in kenya pre-independence and post-independence uh spent most of my life if i look back now i've spent half of my life in kenya most of it the younger half and then most of my adult life living in the uk so i suppose leaving home eventually is is a big big challenge uh for many people uh whatever the circumstances by which you have to leave in some cases it's political in some cases it's potentially the future of your children or my parents felt that or other times it's just interest or work whatever it is it is a big uh change to your life and your outlook I think my own personal journey is because I was uh, educated for most of my education in England it was very easy to come and live in England um rather than many of my uh, colleagues certainly Asians in East Africa East and Central Africa who were put on a plane by the regime at the time with nothing and hadn't planned it uh, hadn't lived in England never seen a winter you know they have the extremes i was lucky in that respect that i had a full awareness um and because i had lived by the time i was in my early 30s probably half of my life at school in england i was i was very much uh aware of what to expect uh when i when i came to live here so eyes wide open i think the challenge always with migrants and immigrants it, it it attracts a lot of discussion in the current scenario but at the time i was growing up and came to live it was on the basis of the needs of the country and the skills that i brought with me and it remains one of the most difficult things i know in the current climate uh, to to justify but it was quite clear cut in those days so being an engineer having done my degree in the uk having worked for a uk based company in my home country of kenya meant that i was always i was a hybrid so i lived and worked in, uh, uh, in england and then i lived at home so i enjoyed the best of both worlds um so from a cultural point of view that was great from a professional point of view it was always going to be a challenge to move through the hierarchy of major corporations and the one thing i have learned is that the more remote you are from the center and in which case mine was london and then it was houston uh, the 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 more difficult it is to move up the ladder because you're not there you're not p- meeting people at the coffee station you're not having your reviews with you know two levels of management up it's all remote and you're only as good as the person you report to and if you're in kenya or southern africa you're 
quite a few thousand miles away from where things happen. And that's the challenge that I faced in my early career, which then accelerated probably exponentially when I came to live in England. Because to be fair, I probably was behind the curve of my peer group. I enjoyed what I was doing and I was very happy and I was at home and I was well paid, but I, 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 I was behind the curve of where they'd got to in terms of promotion and recognition, etc. back in the UK. So it's something I had that was a challenge, but it was a challenge that I took, I, I, I realized and, and made sure that I, I managed that throughout my uh, early years in the UK and ended up probably at the top of the organization, both the organizations I was on at board level uh, before I decided to go out on my own. Do you think coming from Kenya and being remote in that way, for, I think it takes a lot of willpower and energy and determination and courage to leave your home country to, to, to go somebody, somewhere else. I think it says a lot about you as an individual. Do you, do you think there's similarities between the two scenarios from one nationally going to, the, uh, to another country to, to learn? Um, to, to build a career, to build a life, and actually within a corporate organization, do you think it connects, you know, if you're working remotely as well? So there are two parts, and that's a good question, Stuart. There are two parts to that. One is, with Kenya being a former British colony and having had British administration pre-independence, we were anglicized to a point anyway. So we had the administration, we had the curriculum, we had our, our schooling was in English, uh, you know, and we had English teachers and you know, expatriates, etc. So we were living in England away from England, as it were, but it was physically in Kenya. So the mindset, the culture was a lot. For me personally, I had the added advantage that I was at school in England from a very young age which you could argue is your formative age from sort of five to 13, which is what you would have in your prep schools now. And I was in a prep school here in England. I then went back to a post-colonial private school in Kenya, which had its own dimension. So we were only the second or third colored intake into the school. So all of us in the junior school were of all different types of uh, backgrounds. And everybody from the third form upwards were all white because they were the outgoing, um, mm. you know, it was, it was obviously white only. So you've kind of met those challenges at different levels and different times of my life. And I think that was a strength for me because I was able to mm. see the difference. I was able to grow up during the change. And, and one thing about being in England in the in, you know, early 60s and 70s is that people had not traveled as much as they do now mm. you know that many people when i was at university in manchester had never left manchester you know i mean not because of any other reason they just they just lived and worked and whatever and married and children and and just worked down the road from where they were born whereas you know for me there was always intrigue and fascination about oh my god you live there and i used to go back on holidays so that young age was able to uh make me i enjoyed the english way of life the humor, the dress, the theater, and it lent itself to me being in, in a theater 
uh, organization in the UK which were running, it was a rep theater, 17 plays a year. And I was involved in and out with that for eight years. And we were doing all English speaking plays, you know, Shakespeare's and all the famous authors, Aitborne, et cetera. So many of my, uh, my own uh, hobbies, et cetera, were also, you know, based in an English cultural environment but with the luxury of having sunshine for 365 days a year and being able to be outdoor <laughs> without heavy clothing, et cetera, throughout the year. So it was really the best of both worlds. And I think when I came to live here, it was that understanding uh, that made me, people curious before we got to the real edge of all the racial tension because I, I never really experienced it in my younger years. I've, I've experienced more in my 60s than I ever did between the ages of 5 to, say, 25. Wow, how it's interesting. interesting it? it is interesting. Well, there's a couple of things out of that conversation is that I was going to ask you, how have you seen attitudes changed from the 70s to now? Because there's a common perception that it's got a lot better since the 70s. But now they've experienced it more in your 60s, that's very interesting. What do you think that is? And how does it manifest itself? Yeah, so how does it manifest I itself? So I yeah. think there is definitely a difference between your private life and what you do and how you succeed, uh, where you live and how you live, and your professional life. When I suggest in my private life, I've never really, in all my years, I've never had a problem because... I can see it and I can manage it. And I'm, you know, I'm articulate enough to be able to walk away from being drawn into a discussion, argument, fist fight, whatever it might be. Uh, when, when I was younger, I might not have reacted in the same way. So there's a sense of maturity there. But in my, in my business life and in my professional life, um, I'd never worked on a railway before I came to England. And that was when I was in my late 30s. And yet I became the head of transportation at a large uh, uh, American organization in the UK dealing with rail. And I remember my early years. First of all, everybody at my level and above were, were all white Anglo-Saxon males. So you go to meetings and it was just people weren't aware of it. But for me, it was like, you know, it's just a feeling that you get and you didn't want to make a big deal of it. But that that was it. And the second was, if you hadn't been in the railway for 100 years, what did you know about it? Yet my skill set was transferable because it was project controls, cost, schedule, risk management, which transcends all cultures. It's the, the basic. So and, you know, I felt that I was good enough. And by the virtue of the fact that I did then get promoted, etc., other people thought I was good enough. So it was never an issue. But still today, there are many areas and many decision-making uh, uh, forums which are not as representative as you might think it could be or should be. In fact, if you're extreme, you might say it should be. But the middle to senior management still is quite not as diverse and integrated as people in the professional world, as people like would like to, to think. And... I have friends of mine in the law, in, in, in the legal professions, and just you know, just because they're redheaded and came from Manchester, very difficult to get into any of the inns in London, you know, the old schoolboy network or whatever. And those kind of those kind of things haven't, in my opinion at least, 
they haven't changed that much because that's an age group that's a whole section of the population mm. which comply and you know I, I i should be careful but you know it's the it's the it's everything we've learned some of it becomes a tick box exercise another becomes a behavioral change and i think in those aspects there is a massive behavioral change still to do because i think mm. we've got all the tick boxes you could ever want in terms of diversity inclusion equality you know you, people have got stats all over the place and that great stats but if the mindset's not there doesn't mean anything mm. in my opinion it's very interesting that you mentioned that and that you know in your perception things haven't changed uh, that much over time and it's become a tick box exercise for, as opposed to a more of a behavioral changes and it's interesting you say that because i kind of see that around around me and around the place as well you know we've become a tick box society we're ticking a lot of boxes and that goes for uh you know uh, racial equality and inclusion i think it goes for age uh, ageism and age inclusion and i've come across that one being 61 um that you know they had the age you know most businesses have policies and a yeah. tick box um it can be extended to the environment and the green issues we've got a green policy the ticket but really behaviorally not really much change so i think you're right and i think it's a very important and interesting point that you raise because i think the tick box society um in fact we may have just coined a phrase actually to to, to label for this generation but but uh, the, the 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 tick box society seems to be masking what's really going on and it can surprise people that you know we say we see these attitudes that uh, that have gone back years and years and years um i see it in cash flow in construction as well you know yeah. there's lots of reports and 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 we've got technology but culturally with cash flow it hasn't really changed for the last four or five hundred years and and it, we're still very much behaviorally um in that kind of fear zone of giving and paying money do we are we going to pay too much are we getting it wrong um you know but there's very much a a, a tick box attitude to, to not just that but lots and lots of different things but coming back to your experience you know what what do you think needs to happen to change make that behavioral change you know which I, is hidden behind the mask of the tick boxes yeah and i i think i should really caveat what i've just said in that i think the the, the millennials and the next generations they've made the change already their behavioral change and openness and inclusiveness and political correctness is way beyond the next generation of say the mid 30s to the uh, mid 40s and then completely different in my opinion i mean substantially different to the mid 50s to the mid 60s but the the center the the power base is still in that top bracket so you're going to have those behaviors those mindsets who know and absolutely have to comply with everything that's coming but i would suggest that they have to work on it whereas the up and coming younger generations they've got it that's good news 
that that's great to hear actually yeah. you know it's a yeah. real compliment to the to the new younger generation that are coming up because they're quite often criticized and you know but but it that that's great to hear it's it's it's, yeah. it's music music to the ear to hear that. i think it is and if, if, if they can translate that social uh status of equality diversity inclusion into their professional lives then that's what will drive that change mm -hmm. to become more behavioral we will still and always will have compliance requirements where we will have the tick box the metrics because how do you show how do you demonstrate that you've achieved what you aim or aspire to achieve we have to at the moment do it through some sort of uh you know uh, metrics and so we will have so there will be the numbers the, the physical numbers male female disability uh, ethnic background uh you know sexual preferences those are all things that are now creeping into this wider uh, uh picture i mean you know for the years that i filled in forms it was always very easy either you were male or female and now <laughs> you have to yeah. a number so things are changing yeah. right so we've got yeah. There was something I wanted to pick up with you um, from what you were saying, Sebash, uh, around, uh, well, your background, really. You're a qualified civil engineer and you've got the civil engineering background. Yet, on the other side of you, which is really interesting, is that you're involved in theatre and Shakespeare. Yes. So you're kind of left, left uh, hemisphere on one side and right hemisphere on the other, you know, left side of brain, right side of brain. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a wonderful, that's a, probably quite an unusual trait. And so what, 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 uh, drives you to, uh, either side of that equation? So theater has always been something. So I think my mom, my mother used to remind me that when I'm, I think when I was 11, apparently I wrote my first play, uh, which was then performed. It was all of about three minutes, but, you know, as an eight, 10 year old uh, and at primary school and, and, and people, and because I'd had an education in England, when I got back to Kenya, I was different, not because I wanted to be different, but I was different. You know, I probably spoke with a, with a cockney slight mild cockney accent you know i had my nhs glasses on you know I, I just looked different and then when i spoke different everybody kind of looked you know where did this guy come from but so i brought that with me and 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 maybe i used that because then through school i was you know you you have to choose one or two uh, extracurricular activities and i went straight into theater and into public speaking and elocution, whatever they wanted to call it, or however it was badge, I was in that environment. So I did plays when I was at school. And then when they formed this semi-professional company in Nairobi, uh, you know, I was I was friends with a lot of the people who were involved. And they said to me, look, why don't you come in? And I loved backstage. And it took me a while before that I actually went out on stage and, and did some parts. But, you know, I was involved in, it was a rep theater, so eight years, 17, it's over 100 productions, but I was involved with probably 30, 40 productions, and I probably had a role, speaking role, in about half of those, or more than two-thirds of those. So I loved, I suppose it helps you with confidence, it helps you with public speaking and presentation, it helps you uh, read people, body language, because 
you know when you're on stage everybody thinks oh it's easy just learn your lines it's not that it's you've got to be in the moment because if someone forgets their lines or jumps three pages ahead if if you're not concentrating you won't know where you are and that's yeah. against the script especially shakespeare because it's very difficult most people i know don't really ad lib shakespeare that well um whereas if it's <laughs> contemporary prose you can just you can just do rubbish really and and get away with it so that concentration that means you watch people that means eye contact that all the things that make good leaders good team leaders you know the soft skills i i learned a lot of that through not only playing in the role but some of the big roles of you know othello and some of the big shakespearean plays and some of the darker uh serious plays uh, you know that i was in you learn about some of the behaviors of humans in human being so it was an education as well as a a pleasure to do what was your, what's your favorite play have you got a favorite play my personal favorite was uh othello and i was i, I played iago opposite the director of the company and then my very good school friend played othello and uh, my wife played Desdemona. So it was just a production that was just a great play. And the role I played was one of, the, you know, one of the better. I, I enjoyed my Shakespeare's, but I was seen as a as a comedian and farcer. So the quality. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And, and do, do you still do? You, are you still involved at all? Uh, I think time time commitments. Where, when I was in Kenya, it was uh, it was you know twenty minute drive from home, and it was because it was semi professional. It was very very professionally run. I tried a couple of sort of fringe uh, uh, opportunities here in Woking and uh, Nomads, but it was more social than it was uh, serious. If you know what I mean, which is fine. But because I'd been brought up with that, you know this is the proper way of doing it no drinking at rehearsals you know very strong discipline to come to a much laissez-faire kind of thing where you know most rehearsals was done in the pub and then a couple of you know it was just different and i, I just yeah, didn't feel sure. i could make the change so yeah so it's interesting uh, that you've got these two sides to you you've got this very what well, i would say very developed creative ability in in theater not only writing plays but acting in them and then you're you've got this very kind of scientific approach to which is seven civil engineering is more uh, around uh, left side and, and and then you wrote i know that in the, on the threads in linkedin you you write about the the cl climate change and sustainability as well and yeah. We, we quite often, again, this comes back to a behavioral thing. You know, we have the, the reports and the science and the models uh, that tell us one thing. Yet the behavior of, of people are around choices and consumerism is, is kind of, and we touched, touched on that earlier in another context, but it seems to be lagging, lagging behind and a good friend of mine uh, Puran who's, who was the uh, founder of uh, Bedzet um, very much still involved in the climate change movement um, particularly around the built environment um, he, he talks a lot about the left and right brain hemisphere you know in terms of being us being linked into the being able to, to with the right brain side being linked into um, nature 
if you like it's more kind of the, the creative it's been a feeling of being one with nature and one with each other and the, and as you say the communication the the, the um you know get, uh, having a feel for the uh body language of people and judging you know being able to to to, to understand uh, the human being or the human being you're communicating with on the one side and then you've got this other side which is very scientific and we seem to have lent uh kind of the, the pendulum swung way over to the scientific side you know do you think that might that's kind of a you know we we tend to be a, a, a you know through university without having that uh outlet for creativity so much these days do you think we're leaning towards just purely to trying to take a purely scientific approach to uh things like climate change and um cultural issues uh, do you think there needs to be a balance? Do you think there might be a, 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 a kind of link there? You seem to have got a, a really nice, balanced and rounded uh, approach to life and experience to life. But do you think there's a kind of an imbalance there, General? So I, think, I, I think the answer to your question is yes, but I, I don't see that as a problem. And I, the reason I say that is uh, in my formative years, uh, so I studied civil engineering. So those were that was studying the tools of the profession. As an engineer, I could have probably gone one of two ways, very generically. I could have stayed in the engineering and been the head of engineering and carried on with designs and new challenges of, you know, all the stuff engineering. But then there's this you move into the management space and the project management space and and that's when you're dealing not that's when you're expected to have the technical ability but you're also expected to have the soft skills and you don't just get your soft skills from nowhere and there are i would say and i talk to colleagues a lot of the time i have made that journey through engineering and the technical side i know what it is okay i'm not up to speed with all design practice and stuff now but i know enough about you know, how how things are built and design basics and all of that but actually i'm not i don't have to deal with that because i have technical people reporting to me who deal with that i have to deal with the people issues and i'll tell you a story of a couple of years ago every year at the institute of civil engineers they have what they call the smeaton lecture and it's one of those, you know, once a year, really pro high profile person in engineering comes and talks about something. And I can't remember his name, which is terrible, but this guy was in his early 90s and he was, and he was talking about his career, 67 years in engineering, right? So he came up, he was quite uh, not, not, not uh, able to walk. And so he came in and he sat at the conference desk on the, on the podium. And he had a young person deliver his presentation because he just wasn't up to that. But he was there, all, everything working, sharp as a button. When he came to the questions and answers and the end of the session, he said, um, he said I'm just going to ask you one question, about 250 people in the room, all techie engineers type people, right? And he said, um, he said in my 67 years of, in my career, what do you think I spent most of my time doing? 
and he went around the room and he asked about i don't know 15 people just you know and it went from design design changes new ways of working new contracts everything and at the end of it he said not one person has has got the right answer and he said 60 to 80 percent of my time in 67 years has been spent on people and the management wow. of people and he said you can say what you like but if you are in a position of a senior project manager or a program director or a head of department or a head of discipline you most of your time will be spent on people moving people around making sure people have a career deploying bidding for work using people most of your time is on people and it shocked everybody you know so well it can't be coming and then they started to analyze now technical people that might not be true and that's fine you need technical people you don't want everybody to be a leader but of the leaders and i know now myself uh, one of my the criticisms of me and perhaps one of my weaknesses is that i still have the engineer in me so i get caught in the weeds i shouldn't be there at all but it takes time and it distracts from what i should be doing and that is something you have to get over and that's why i believe not everybody and, and nor should they expect to make that transition from engineering into management and i think it is wrong for people to assume that good engineers and i'm an engineer so i can say that good engineers make good managers doesn't it doesn't equate i think it's similar to good footballers don't necessarily make good managers either um, exactly yeah what do you think goes into uh, the key traits of being a people manager i think compassion is a is a, is is a big thing i think people talk about culture um and i think culture is an interesting one but if you have lived through something or like being brought up in africa or being brought up in nairobi uh where for example uh people say oh uh you know the poor in africa the poor in where i lived in nairobi actually poor for them means they have nothing absolutely nothing right on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. whereas some of the people that are interviewed on television here saying uh, well, the government doesn't look after me, and then they just put their fag out, and then they get their bottle of their glass of wine or beer and have a sip and continue with the debate and say, "We, you know, they should be looking after us better. They're housed, they're fed, they haven't allowed." So it's the definition of poverty and what poor is, and understanding things like that, those cultural differences about how people have come from nowhere with literally nothing to relatively being quite well off with nothing is a big is a big thing and it happens all over the world it's not just from africa europe i mean in england we have our own issues with 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 differential poverty and food banks now and people who thought they were okay suddenly finding that they can't afford to to do what they've always done and both working etc so i think so compassion i think cultural awareness um and i think the ability to listen and i think domain knowledge i mean i would say to most people in teams that i've done if i ever ask them to do something it will almost 
99% will have been something I've done in my life. So if I say to someone, I need this thing photocopied by lunchtime, it's not because I'm just an ogre who's a lazy sod who doesn't want to get up and do the photocopying. It's because sometimes you just got to give people something to do. It doesn't matter that they're a double first from Oxford graduate. They're just going to do the photocopying today, you know. And it's not, mm. but it's that ability to for people to do it willingly is because you earn that respect of connecting yeah, with them sure. at whatever level. You know, I mean, I go to the Institute of Civil Engineers and the guy every time I go who gives me the biggest uh, hug is the senior waiter in the in the cafeteria. Much to the embarrassment of some of my friends, who's he? I said, well, he, he serves coffee, tea and coffee in the canteen. But why, why does he always come up and give you something? It's because you connect with people. And for me, I think that that ability, you know, we talk about, you know, the old adage, adage of, uh, you know, um, would you follow your leader over the top you know um if you were ordered to or instructed to and most people would do it because out of the fear of whether they went over the top if they didn't go over the top they get shot anyway for desertion or whatever but if you went over the top it's because you believed and you had respect in your leader and without being stupid of course but you would follow your leader somewhere and that's because you respect that person Mm. you understand yeah i think that's a it's a huge part it's these soft skills that are people have to work on them some people and i feel like maybe i'm one of them you have a natural disposition so you finesse it through working and having experiences others have to work really hard and others simply just don't make that journey and we all know those types of managers that exist in all fields very very wise words and lots of good advice there to anybody seeking to become a manager the people skills uh, very important and and i think it's a lesson in itself to see your story and your background as well and you know to see the head waiter to give you a hug and that's because they receive respect from you too first and i can feel that you're a warm person you're you're somebody that is it makes you feel confident to be around as well so yeah. you can see it really comes through Sebash, what what are you involved in at the moment? How is your what what work are you uh, what are you doing now? To come back on to topic about uh, cash flow, but what I've been doing for the last fifteen years in the roles that I've done is leading major projects from a controls point of view through very tortuous planning requirements, and as we are all aware, when any secretary of state or anybody who's doing a major project or program the two things that people are always keen to understand is uh when is it going to be done when is it going to be delivered and how much it's going to cost and you know they don't come and ask whether are we going to have the best glazing or are we going to have the best floor system or are we going to have enough parking or are they going to you know they don't ask that they expect that right but they ask when is it going to be ready? When can I use it? When can I get benefit for it? And how much is it going to cost? And the controls piece that I've been involved with and continue to be involved with at all levels is about the control, the monitoring and control of the cost, which is based on the schedule, which is based on the scope, 
and is based on the risks associated with delivering that in the environment you're delivering it. All of those four aspects involve a pound note in some form or another. And I would say to anybody who comes onto my team, I would say that imagine you're a pound note. And at the beginning of this project, that pound note is just a, a dream. I'd like to have a five bedroom house. Yeah, I'd really like it. How much is it going to cost? I don't know. Half a million pounds. You have no idea about what kind of house is going to be, where it's going to be, and bought the land, nothing. You just know that you want a house. As you go through that journey, that pound note becomes an estimate because you've made uh, some decisions on how big the house should be, whether it's going to be high, medium, low quality fi uh, finishes, whether it's going to be in the middle of Surrey or it's going to be in the Outer Hebrides, etc. All these things are going to impact uh, what that what that pound note becomes in terms of uh, tender and then ultimately as a completion and then becomes your house. And each of them will have their own journey. They'll be going, there'll be an estimate, then they might become a tender price, and then they might become something that you pay the contractor because they built it, and then it becomes historical. It costs me £575,000 or whatever it is. That pound note, every time it's touched by something, it's touched usually by a function. It's touched either by how much is it, it, it's touched by how are you going to build it, it's touched by how long is it going to take you, the schedule, and it's touched by, uh, you know, someone saying, well, I don't want that kitchen, I want this kitchen. Well, you asked for a Wix best uh, kitchen, and now you're going for the top of the range. Well, it's going up four times. So how do you manage that change? It's going to take you longer because it's being delivered from Norway, and, you know, you only get it once a year, so you've got two months more of the whole workforce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That same panel goes through all those journeys and comes out at the other end. What we do, what I do, and what I'm passionate about is making sure that every all the key parties to that journey are aware of what did you plan to do versus what you did and explain why there is a variance. When any secretary of state or anybody who's doing a major project or program, the two things that people are always keen to understand is uh, when is it going to be done? When is it going to be delivered? And how much it's going to cost? Usually, and in my career, very rarely, if any, has it gone down, it goes up. And, and therefore, yep. it puts pressure on all the party stakeholders, especially the funders, especially the model that says, if I sell 10 bottles of this new product, I'll make my money back. But if it costs you twice as much, you have to sell 200 or whatever, and the market is just not there. All of those scenarios, I believe that my role is to provide credible evidence of where we are to date and where we're going to be the forecast. And for funders and for people with mortgages, and for, we treat it the same way in our daily lives. We have a fixed income and we want to do everything, but we can't afford everything. So what do we do? We either don't do anything or we borrow the hell out of it, everything and, and live in debt. I mean, or you just, you know, it's somewhere in between. So we're doing this all the time. And then we're hit with inflation and we suddenly can't afford it. Cost of living crisis. It's the same principles that affect uh, projects, but we're talking about orders of magnitude. We're talking about 
100 billion for HS2. You know, we're talking about all the big projects, Thames Tideway, four and a half billion, the Olympics, 10 billion, et cetera, et cetera. But we have to control those costs and it is inevitable that they will go up. But my personal view is what is, where are we really truthfully, honestly, and what can we prove to where we need to be? And then people can make the decision whether to go and fund, get a, another new mortgage to pay for this kitchen or just have the old kitchen, whatever they make a decision on based on how much it's going to cost, how long is it going to take, and is it available or not, or, or any others. What risk is it that you import this new kitchen and no one's ever built it, no one's ever used it? So, same with projects, that's what I do. And at the core of it, there are two real um, aspects that people will say normally. One is that the schedule is king. And the others will be cost is king. But they are so inextricably linked, it doesn't matter which one you choose, because one follows mm. the other, in my view. And it's keeping a handle on that. So cost, and we're talking about cost, uh, cash flow is just like we do with our own uh, funds every month. It's about, you know, if we're going to take mortgages, if we're going to take loans, we need the cash to be there at those key dates, usually the end of the month when a big chunk gets direct debited out of your account. It's the same here. And then if you're hit with inflation or you're hit with the mortgage rates going back, it puts a big hole. You have to stop. You have to readjust. Hopefully you can still afford it, but at the sacrifice of giving up the lease car or you know, whatever, not putting the lights on. I don't know. Same thing, same principles, but we have to be at an order of magnitude different. I love the scenario that you paint the picture of imagine you're a pound uh, attracting these touch points as you as you go along. Uh, that picture for me was almost a picture of a pound going down the river and it's it's got these kind of yeah. things that are interacting with it as it as it goes along. We're following that pound if you like if it's on a large project and we're looking at the touch points. What do you think the biggest uh, risks to that pound as we go down that journey to from the budget of this is what we think it's going to cost to this is what it did cost at the end uh, where where are the biggest kind of um, risks or blockages that that pound might see on its journey would that be through a something regarding processes or systems or would that be around uh the number of hands that the pound has to go through and can we always so, control that pound on its journey i would like to think that we can always control it the elements that uh impact might be out of our control like inflation like the war in ukraine but the end result is that that steel or that roofing tile or whatever is going to cost you twice as much the same tile it might be delivered in the same uh, uh, program in two months' time, but it's going to cost you twice as much out of your control. But you can control it by then saying, okay, should we go for a cheaper tile? And make up the fact that it's gone up with, you know, a cheaper tile. And if the client says, no, I want that tile, well, therefore you're going to have to pay the price. It's not anybody's fault. No fault at all. It's things that happen out of your control. But we have control. And the idea is to give 
the client in that respect the opportunity to say okay i'll go for the cheaper tile or, or whatever you know mm. in my my experience it there are two halves of, of every project there is everything you do till the point you issue a letter of award to construct which is what i would call development and then there is everything that you do to build it in the development you have control the key thing for me is scope if we knew right from the beginning the scope and it never changed life would be very easy it never happens that way right the other thing i would say and as an engineer i can say this and i know most of my colleagues would they always we have a good discussion is if you estimate to spend a hundred pounds on something and that's what you've decided is all the money you've got for the design there is little point in going out to some other party to do the design with a spec that's going to cost you 500 pounds you have to so the question is design to budget or design to what you want and then get the budget you can't have it both because every time you make a change, every time you make a change, there's an impact, either on the scope or the cost or the schedule, all of which will end up costing you more, mostly, mostly. So it's controlling the scope. Notoriously, notoriously, designers find it difficult to design to a budget. They want to design to a specification, and the specification is up there. So in order to meet their requirements, their professional obligation to give the client the best product for their ask, they're saying it's going to cost you more. Now, in my role, I would be saying, why? Because we don't have the money. I simply don't have the money. Mr. Client, can you go and get the money? No, got no money. So what do we do? We go back to where I believe we should have been is, why are we not trying to design this to the budget not to be all singing and dancing because we don't have the budget and that's a very difficult area and that comes out of when you start and you get a quotation for something you make a number of assumptions you'll assume the ground conditions are okay you're just going to build it straight on the land you you assume the aesthetics is fine and that the planning guys are going to accept your big glazed living room overlooking everybody else's backyard you assume all these things and as you progress it you get a number of impositions no you can't do that oh the ground is completely rubbish so you're gonna have to spend hundreds of thousands on uh, cleaning up dirty land and then the council say you can't have that much space of windows because of your privacy laws whatever 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 and that whole thing goes through that M many times people take the estimate and forget about the assumptions and when the assumptions are realized because they will be realized at some stage they feel oh we thought we thought that that was in the price well why was it in, why did you think that was in the price when your assumption was we don't think we're going to have to do any earthworks and you end up spending 400,000 on the earthworks have a look at why you made that assumption on what basis very often forgotten you get a you get a claim and you just have to do it 
and someone has to find the money. And money that you've earmarked for something else, if you're sticking to your budget, goes out the window. So that super kitchen becomes a basic kitchen because you need to spend half of that money on the earth. I'm making, I'm exaggerating to make the point. There are many steps during the development phase. The other thing in this country, and not so in many other countries, is our planning requirements as they exist put a premium on all construction and i'm not suggesting it's right or wrong it is the way we do things in this country but in many other countries around the world if projects and we've talked about this in the uk many times we haven't really had the courage of our convictions to follow it through many projects of national significance so if it's an airport it, it's not, it doesn't benefit uh, West London County Council. It benefits the whole of the UK, for example. If there's a rail link from here to Edinburgh, it doesn't just, you know, all of these things, they should be taken away from uh, the decision-making along that journey should be made a little bit different, not to take away completely and just bulldoze through people's backyards and all, but there shouldn't be the element that you have 55 councils along the route and each one has its own say and it we end up spending a lot of money on planning and i'm not saying it's wasted i think it's a very important part but i think we just need to be a little bit more prudent about if this is a nationally significant infrastructure program and if the taxpayer is paying for it you know why are the taxpayers so happy to push the price up through the roof it's it's just coming out of their own pocket and they wouldn't do it for their own kitchen extension but they're happy to do it for a big project and tie themselves up to trees and glue their hands to the thing but you know if, if the report is correct that the police force spends 7.5 million pounds um, managing those three or four major disruptions on the m25 and the queen elizabeth bridge is that taxpayers money well spent and we're talking about tens of millions on Crossrail and HS2 and T5 and Lower Thames Crossing, London Olympics. Okay, Olympics, a bit different. We had to kind of do that. So there's the control at the beginning, and then there's the control while you're building, of course, which is construction. Yeah. That's an amazing, amazing point you raised there, particularly around the governance and decision-making process for a national project. It kind of almost feels like there is a one-size-fits-all process for decision-making around planning uh, as opposed to kind of uh, let's make a strategy for making decisions that suits the particular scheme we've got to hand. So there are effectively three, for anything over, anything that's significant, so not just a house, but a house has its own issues. But if you were a house builder with 500 houses or you are a major infrastructure, HS2, and all the big ones there are two main ways of going for planning one is what they call a development consent order and the other is through a hybrid bill which is an act of parliament they are very different and most times most times uh, it will go through a development consent order because that's more accessible all the time uh, with one that goes through a hybrid bill or an act of parliament, um, once it gets in the House of Commons and House of Lords, 
you don't have any control over it other than giving them information. So both are riddled with issues, but the principle is there are three or four main components for all of these submissions. One is cost. The second is uh, what is the environmental impact, both during construction, which is substantial on projects like HS2, which take 10, 12 years, massive, uh, to the final operating condition. How do we bring it back to or improve the environmental uh, surrounding? Another one is what they call the code of construction practice. And this is where complement your environmental impact. It is about how you are going to look after people when you're going to put a big concrete plant at the end of their garden for five years or blight their views of areas of outstanding natural beauty or whatever. All of these things have to be done to a totally with the standard that's required. But it does take many longer than I think it should take, and that's because of so many iterations and changing. This is political will. The other thing that construction projects have a problem with for long term ones is political cycles and changes. So, whether someone is sponsoring a project because it's on their manifesto or whether it's for the good of the country, you have to ask yourself the question because. Whilst they might say it is, what they're trying to do is making sure that they're getting re-elected, for example. And all I'm mm -hmm. suggesting is that it has an influence on the decision-making. And in terms of cash flow, absolutely, because what we do as a country, and we have a highly regulated uh, um, utility, so water is regulated by off what electricity is regulated by Ofgem, et cetera, et cetera. The rail is, 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 is uh, regulated by the government. What they're saying is that you can only charge the fee-paying customers or your customers for water or electricity so much. And what we see now is that what they can get back doesn't cover the cost of the implementation of a new power station or HS2, etc. So, where is the Delta coming from? Well, the Delta is coming from the government. Or it's coming off balance sheet from a third party. Let's say, for example, China will say, yeah, we'll give you 30% of the value, of the cost of HS2, but this is what we want. It could be that. It's not yet that. And there are people who say it might be a good thing. There are other people who say never on you know, while, they, while they're still alive kind of thing. So, but the political arena causes lots of problems to delivery and has a big impact on cost uh, and mm. longe longevity. So I think those are some of the key issues which we need to look at the construction industry that have direct impact on both the cost and the cash flow of, of, of any types of projects. Do you think, how do you think that those decision-making processes affect the industry as a whole with regard to a supply chain? Um, so I know a lot of listeners to, to the podcast would might be a small business or a small supplier to the, um, to the construction industry, albeit I know with the, the national schemes with the HS2s, these are, you're talking about much, much larger organizations as such. 
but they quite often filter down to the individual they still filter down to individual trades or the individual person that might be running a self-employed business running a piece of plant or a, a particular driver that runs drivers you know so it kind of uh, whilst we do have these large organizations it filters down into much much smaller businesses that maybe can't always shoulder the the burden of a cash flow blockage and you know we don't always know from the bottom of the cash flow whether the money's there in the pot to 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 pay for the particular stage that we're at um how do you feel that structure and the decision making process might affect those smaller businesses down down the line we've learned from uh major collapses and carillion being one of the biggest ones is where they have been very brutal with their supply chain and in fact their their supply chains have funded their profits in many ways things like unfair terms and conditions of payment um you know so they're on 30 days with with the with the dft and the supply chains on 120 days and and so on and so forth and then they don't get paid and so we have to protect my my belief is i'm a very big advocate of the infrastructure bank so if the government decides you're going to spend 5 million pounds on this project you appoint and you delegate authority to a representative like someone like uh, a big construction management firm or a big lead development partner but what you do then is that once you've awarded the contract and you understand the framework of su- the supply chain that when a certificate is uh, signed off for payment that all the parties get paid directly from the bank and not through the uh, main contractor and as we did in the olympics we reduced the time for payment because we knew that it was in our interest to keep the whole supply chain cash positive rather than put pressure on them because it was in no one's interest for your biggest you know seat manufacturer to go bust halfway through or it just wasn't so what could we do if we were able to do that this is having the courage of your conviction of first allocating the money over multiple years over multiple political cycles we know that everything's controlled by five year cycles in rail in water in aviation and nuclear so we've got these amp cycles asset management plans so we have to make the best estimates for those so again we're talking about cash flow if we had an infrastructure bank we could ease that problem so you put in an organization that validated and measured and paid on time right take it out of the contractors um uh, uh control the second thing I, I i believe we should be really looking at is when any project is going over multiple years the first time you do the cash flow is and you'll see it in a curve that the maximum cash flow is during the peak of construction so there's a bell curve 
So if you have a five-year contract and you let it in 2000, then you expect your cash flows to be high in 2002 and three, and then winding down in four and finishing in five. You apply an inflation factor based on the government's forecast for inflation. And bearing in mind it's compounded over those five years, so it's a big number. My view is that you should avoid as much as you can moving that peak out to the right. And if you imagine that we were going to spend, just say, on a project, 300 million pounds in 2023, and we awarded the contract in 2021, we might have only had 4% for inflation for last year. If we moved yeah. all of last year's 300 million pounds into this year, we'd be paying 9%. So this yeah. is about controlling. You know, you, you were saying earlier, what we can't control inflation. All we can use is the government profile for five years, apply it and say, this is the cost of your uh, project. This is the likely inflation through the project. And this is your risk profile through the project. You can't control the, the inflation because that's going way above. When we were in Europe, it would be part of the European monetary uh, regime or whatever. So you, you can only make the best estimates. But what you can control is delivering on time and putting pressure. Because if you think you're, you're going to delay it by a year and you take and inflation is going up a percentage point, you can evaluate what that's going to do to the cost of it. Mm, you could absolutely. spend a little bit of that and, and do it in the year two. But this again, you have to trust people to give you good advice and then you have to listen and take that advice. The question of authority to give those professionals to, to do what's best, keeping the lawyers informed, getting the decisions made at the right time, but not hampering them and the impact of which pushes the contracts out, which tends to happen quite a lot. I like the idea of the infrastructure bank and I like your scenario of the curve because you can imagine yeah. on a large contract a delay would how much that would push out so it's yeah. everyone in the chain uh, being aware of the possibilities of the risks etc keeping that on target keeping the professionals with the ability and authority to run the project uh, planning yeah. the project designing the project working to the plan working to the design everyone um everyone understands yeah. the design and and coming back to your earlier points about the pre uh the, the, the pre and the post uh that you know the, the design period and the construction period you know i i, I know even uh, and, and coming back to communication and, and and dealing with people as you mentioned earlier with the chat that was 90 that one of the most the things he's done 60 percent of what he's been involved in in, the, in his long career is dealing with people. I've even found from my quantity surveying career in that pre-let uh, uh, pre period, that design period, a large part of what I do is not just producing a spreadsheet with numbers on or this is the cost of this or this is the cost of that, is actually a people skill where you're dealing with designers that want to uh, design something which is going to be high quality, which might be making a statement, which may be pushing the boat out. There's the designers, the architect, the civil engineers. And it's really being working with them 
in terms of how do you manage their expectations without coming to the table holding a poison chalice you know you're mm-hmm. you're kind of and it's a people skill you talk about the management of uh, the pound as it goes through the various different touch points you know you could have a, a cost estimator or a qs you could have 10 qs's and 10 estimators give you a different figure but i have always felt that it's the management of that figure that is really the big uh, the big thing and and also i think depending on the way that a project's procured you can you can be responsible and this is where i think comes back to your re- your, your your recent point around having that control and responsibility because i find in traditional methods of procurement quite often if you're responsible for the budget you let the the you you let the project to main contractor then of course you can't see over the fence to the supply chain or where that pound's going so you lose vision you lose sight of that pound once you've let the contract and that's why i quite liked the idea that you came up with there the infrastructure bank and the supply chain being paid from there and taking that responsibility out of the main contractors hands in terms of the money flow even though they're still responsible for running the project certifying the work and doing all of those things Uh, but i think it keeps the project more transparent so the ideas that you've come up with are kind of triggering ideas in my own mind and it's been um really insightful and it's nothing that i've said to you Stuart, is new right i mean i you know i i treat cash flow it hasn't changed over 100 years why would it change you know you, you think about something and it's going to take you that long that's your initial cash flow that's it whether it's right or wrong or indifferent that's another issue that's your cash flow based on these assumptions arguably my view at a very seen at a very high level is everything that you do before you award the contract is de-risking the cost after you make the award so you do as much design as you want you leave you don't leave anything open-ended for someone to interpret and then whatever cost you you ideally you try to nail it down but we know that's impossible so what happens is you have a big risk in old speak green book you'd have a number and when you came to what's the cost of the project you'd add 65 percent optimism bias that was the government recommendation you try and get that 65 percent down as well you tried to aim to get it down to zero but you could never really do that what's the acceptable i don't know there's no acceptable but in the region of say between 20 and 30 percent at the time you award you've got in scope therefore de-risk and you take your 30 percent contingency then you give a target price then you try and reduce that to 15 percent so from the very very original 65 percent contingency you only use 40 of it everybody's happy because for every pound that you spend you save 35 percent or whatever but it just doesn't happen i remember we used to use it in the 90s but it seems to have gone out of fashion piece of work we did on tideway and this was bringing in all network rail off gem all of them and we facilitated the workshop we took the 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 headings out of the green book um i think there were six categories and various other things and we we translated them into a manageable risk register and what we were promoting is that as early as possible you have a risk register 
and you start yeah. managing your risks. Now, it might equate to 65, but very rarely did it ever. It would really equate to, I don't know, start off with maybe 35, 40%, unless you were doing something that was so new we didn't know any way that we could get a base estimate from. We've delivered enough airports and enough railways and enough roads and bridges and, and maybe not power plants that we should have some idea about the cost. Now, the cost is impacted by where it is. So the cost of a cube of concrete is the same wherever you go in England. But to take that concrete and place it somewhere is the premium we pay for that cube of concrete. It's not that the price of concrete has gone up. No, the price of concrete is the same. But from getting it from A to B and placing it and making mm. finishing it north is where your premium is, right? So guys, what can you control? You can't control the cost because it is the cost. But what you can control is by your methods of, of construction and modern methods mm. of construction. Oh, yeah, build it all offside in a controlled environment. Less wastage, bring it up, bolt it all together, half house, there you go. That's what we should be doing through your risk management. That, that's why I say that cash flow itself has not changed. Cash flow, it is what it is. Cash flow is only as good as your ability to schedule the activities and allocate the cost appropriately to those activities. Because out of that drops out your monthly, weekly, whatever you want, annual, quarter, whatever. That gives you a cash flow. What's really difficult, and employers continue to say we must have it, is how do you profile your risk allowance? So do people just take it as pro rata when you say this is the start date and the finish date of this risk? Do you put all that risk, spread it over that time? There is no, there is no real answer to that. Everybody does it in their own way. And all I'm suggesting is you state the assumptions that you are putting the risk across your profile for five years and you have that discussion and if everybody is reasonably happy then you monitor it against that and if something happens and is different that's okay because you've told them what it was based on and because of these reasons it's changed and therefore the cash flows change but simply mm -hmm. to just hope for the best i mean this is i'm not suggesting people don't do anything with this, <laughs> but uh, but but you know right at the beginning it impacts your cash flow because if you're talking about annual funding if you're talking about five-year cycles on on your caps on uh, charging customers and all these other constraints whatever other constraints the funders may have you need to be fairly accurate when you're going to spend your risk but then how you know that's what it is it's risk so you have to have some sort of tie back to some sort of um assumptions and then profile it accordingly and if the assumptions change let's talk about it i think that's key you know it's one thing having a risk register and identifying risk it's managing it monitoring it interchange and you mentioned funders as well and sometimes at a operational level on a project we don't think about the funder but they have their own risk profile as well and i think it's important when preparing an operations risk register for the project uh, a design risk register an operations risk register is that we combine it with the funders uh, perception of risk as well because that's sometimes forgotten and i've seen it on projects where 
monthly drawdowns are stopped because they're out of line out of a line so it's really you know coming back to what you were saying in in, in combining the communication between all the parties involved let me give you one example so when we started and i think this is now not confidential I and mean, it was 12 13 years ago when we started tideway the model was that thames water were going to pay for it they were going to put a levy on every household, £100 a month, let's just say, for those five years, and they were going to generate all the money they need to buy. When we got to the first estimate, they took it to the water, and the shareholders said, no. They said, we did not invest in terms of water as a construction company importing a project risk, a project of £4.5 on an £8.7 million turnover business. No way. They, they absolutely refuse to allow the, the Thames Water to invest into the delivery of the Thames Tunnel. So we had to go out and get private finance. It put the project back by about three and a half years. Who was in control? It wasn't Thames Water. It wasn't off what? It wasn't the government. It was the shareholders. Right? They're the ones who were saying no. And the government had to then write a clause which was passed through so quickly that you know things can be done if there is a will that they introduced the infrastructure provider whereby utility companies were mandated then because thames water were not construction management and designers for a 4.2 billion pound program they were supposed to just clean water give you clean water and take away the dirty water that was it not import a, a, a project like the thames tideway uh, sewer tunnel that was right across London. That's not their skill set. Government implemented it in the Flood and Water Management Act, that tucked away somewhere that if you didn't know, you'd never know existed. And we were caught right in the middle of that because we were just going for planning and then they introduced this. So we said, well, who's the infrastructure provider? Well, it can't be Thames Water because the shareholders have already said no. Oh, so we have to go through our whole procurement method again. And then we have to go and find finance. Delay three and a half years much Sebash and it's been amazing it's been a masterclass on uh, what you've discussed what we've discussed around cash flow around contracts etc have you yeah. got time for a quick fire round before yeah, we go I was just gonna say, let's, let, let's not forget that quick fire round go on then. okay quick fire round okay I'll whiz through them so how do you start your day so what motivates me is I get up at six and I do a 15 mile bike ride every morning and and I come home and I make tea for the wife in bed. It's something for us all to live up to. When are, <laughs> when are you most when are you most productive? I'm a not I'm a morning person. So AM that's when I'm really productive, and then it goes downhill after lunch. What's something new happening in your life right now? So it's not to dwell on it, but my wife is going through some difficult cancer treatment, and what's new to me is just how amazing the medical profession is. And despite all our bleating about the NHS, they have been for the last year absolutely amazing. And the medical progress that is being made in that area is phenomenal. So my gratitude amazing. to the NHS. Thank you. What does adventure look like to you? It's a... Uh... It's doing something I've never done before, but I've always wanted to do. So uh, bungee jumping, uh, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, 
you know, I don't know what the next one's going to be, but I'll think of something one day. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so this probably follows on slightly. What thing would you love to do that would surprise your friends and family? I'd like to take my three grandsons of eight, 13 and 15 on a safari to Kenya one day. Name a challenge you overcame that changed your life. Uh, moving away from my home country to come and live in England and uh, being as happy as you see me today because I've been, I wouldn't, I've been lucky, but I've worked at it and I've got to where I've got to with a bit of luck and a bit of hard work. What does success mean to you? I'd go and sell ice creams because there is instant gratitude when a little child gets an ice cream in their hand and it's it never, never a dull moment. So, you know, it's, it's seeing people satisfied with what you've done. What inspires and motivates you? I think the implementing big projects and schemes for the benefit of many, many millions of people. And I think that's the basis of civil engineering is to do and deliver projects for the better improvement of people and their lives. What advice would you give to your young self? Take more risks and don't be so conservative. <laughs> <laughs> An amazing, it's been amazing, Sebastian. What a wonderful interview and amazing speaking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure and I, I wait to see the final result. You've been listening to Construction Cashflow. Hit the subscribe button if you haven't already done so, so you never miss an episode. And remember, the faster cash flows, the faster wealth grows.